Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Their views that I've discussed, and, and uh, they, would, they would differ on things. The, the only thing that we can do, the only thing we can do, watch the movie, Left Behind. Now, now, watch it. It's, it's good stuff. It's great entertainment. But uh, theologically, it, uh, it skips around a bit. But still, it's, it's entertaining. The reason, the, rec- uh, the reason that there is such a diversity is the record in Scripture is intentionally left incomplete. Christ has told us multiple times, we've heard this over the last few weeks, no one knows the day nor the hour of his return. Beyond that... Every view, every view that we'll discuss uh, or allude to, every view interprets certain verses literally and takes others figuratively. Everybody does that. Um, When I studied eschatology at Dallas Seminary, my professor warned against undue dogmatism and speculation as he then outlined and presented uh, Dallas Seminary's uh, traditional view, the, the order of the end times events. In most of my class, as we sat there and listened, most of us were young, most of us were younger than me, uh, most of us were inexperienced at that time and, and raised few, few questions. We asked few questions at that time. And to my recollection, there were no objections in the class. We, we got what we were taught and there were no objections. But then, after teaching the Bible for a few years in in missions work, and and then after coming here, later at at this church, some questions to the model that I had accepted began to surface over time. Just just honest questions about things. One is in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If the new heavens and the new earth are established at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, because we are premillennial here, a a time when Jesus is reigning from his Davidic throne for a thousand years, how then does that day of Christ's coming, a day when we say in which there will be a new heavens and a new earth, the old one will be melted down and destroyed, uh, the elements will be uh, melted down, how then... Does that day take mockers, those who are mocking the promise of his coming, Christ's return, by surprise? How then are they surprised if he is then reigning from the throne? We're told that day comes like a thief by Peter. And why does Peter, you go to 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3, utilize the identical illustrations of Noah and Lot? Identical illustrations to describe conditions immediately preceding this new heavens and new earth, uh, exactly as Jesus did in Luke chapter 17, which we studied uh, just recently. And, and there Jesus employs them as conditions previous to his return. It'll be like the days of Noah. It'll be days uh, like the days of Lot. And that day uh, I will come like lightning. 
like lightning, an unexpected event. In short, this is all presented as occurring at Jesus' second coming, not new heavens, new earth at the end of a thousand-year reign. So behold, behold, um, Pastor Weiler took eschatology just this last semester. It was one of his last classes, and he traveled up to Atlanta uh, for in-person studies with a different professor than I had, but with the same views as Dallas Seminary. And I sent with him three or four questions. (laughs) Ones that he and I had been discussing for a while, wanting to understand this. Uh, Um... He did have a chance, an opportunity to slip a couple in, though he didn't get to, get to dominate the class. He did get to slip a couple in. And the professor, again, representing uh, with integrity Dallas Seminary's position, um, not just his own personal views, he admitted, we just are not exactly sure how of the, all of this falls out at the end. Uh, questions that, uh, due to my own experience, I didn't ask when I was there. He said, we're not exactly sure. Uh, I appreciate his honesty. I, I truly do appreciate his honesty. Honesty, that's, that's a premier seminary in this nation. Uh, it, it is easy to rapid fire off verses. Boom, 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 this, that. You know, rapture, mark of the beast, uh, abomination of desola- uh, desolation, and Christ's return, and boom, boom, and rattle off verses and display a chart and act really dogmatic towards listeners if they aren't going through, over time, slowly, the Bible itself and, and, and asking questions of that. People will just accept it due to inexperience. Um, that's what many, not all, but many preachers of eschatology do today. Uh, I used to think that churches who, who really dogmatically uh, chisel all of their end-time positions uh, timing of such things in stone, chisel it in stone, and, uh, and defend it with dogmatic precision. I thought, boy, they must really have it all together. They must have really figured it out. I, I've honestly become, uh, I've, I've really come to enjoy and, and accept the humility of those who acknowledge they don't know everything. We know what's important um, uh, if you want to see a chart, I've got one I will recommend. This is the best chart. That, there are the, there's other good charts. I'm not saying don't look at charts. But the best chart that I've seen around here is in Rhonda Quintana's classroom. And it's, it's given by Answers in Genesis, a very reputable ministry. It's called the Seven Seas. Go check it out. If you want to see um, how things all unfold at the end, that, that's a good, brief description of it. Uh, I'll give you a brief description, too. Um, This we know for sure. Jesus is coming. Those who remain behind will be punished severely. So Christ has warned us repeatedly, be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. That's that's what we want to do. We always want to be ready. That's Luke 12, verse 35. So I'm going to present the remainder of these uh, verses in this chapter in the way that I suspect it is to be revealed, and you may or may not disagree on part of it, that is fine. I will raise some common objections that people will have, and if you have further concerns, come see me. Come see me. I'll do my best to answer them, uh, but I'm going to begin by reading in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Uh, keep, 
Keep attentive. This, this is some difficult stuff, but uh, we aren't going to go real long today, but we'll power through this. Luke 21, again, this is Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, and uh, he is instructing his disciples. This is just uh, the night before he is arrested, all right? In verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near... Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days, plural, the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke here is describing a desolation of Jerusalem. I personally suspect uh, that legendary desolation abomination of desolation, that great tribulation we read about in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13, I personally suspect that describes a similar but different series of events yet to be in the future. Matthew 24, Mark 13, different desolation. So in my belief, verses 20 through 24, which I just read to you, were entirely fulfilled in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, Of course, I acknowledge the times of the Gentiles are yet to be complete. But everything here, I would suggest, is fulfilled. They are called the days of vengeance. Specifically, days of God's vengeance against Jerusalem for crucifying His Son. Back in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Seems like a long time back. Uh, Actually, it's just a couple pages and only three days ago for the disciples. When Jesus said this uh, at his triumphal entry, there we read, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's the why. Because you did not recognize the time of visitation. Um, In this lament recorded in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, Your house has been left to you desolate. That desolate there is a different tense, but the same base Greek word uh, used in Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Three days earlier, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. Desolation means abandon. It's, it's going to be uninhabitable. Luke 19 and 21 refer to 
a desolation that befalls Jerusalem because they did not recognize the time of Christ's visitation. That's the reason that is given. So so this does not describe a future generation some 2,000 years ahead of time, or, or later in the future. But a contemporary generation, a contemporary generation to the apostles, Christ was not there weeping over some generation 2,000 or more years into the future. You follow me? But over the one that would crucify him. He was weeping over them because they would crucify him and therefore severely be punished by God, uh, afterward dispersed as captives among the nations for a long period of time. Look at verse 24. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Alright? They're going to be dispersed, captive, uh, led away for a long period of time. Um, Not just three and a half years, which would be left after the abomination of desolation. I'm not surprised that neither... Matthew 24 or Mark 13 use this language of a diaspora, a dispersal, meaning a Jewish dispersal among the nations. They they don't record that part. Nor would they, since Jesus states in both Matthew and Mark, that immediately following the Great Tribulation, that's what we see as the last three and a half years, after the abomination of desolation until Christ's return, uh, that period, that great tribulation, Jesus says after that he will immediately return. Okay? He'll immediately return. There won't be any time left after the great tribulation for Israel to be led captive among all the nations for a really long period of time until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But there was time for that after 70 A.D., after 70 A.D., John MacArthur, he teaches, and this recording was a while back, so he may have adjusted since that recording and today, uh, is, but I don't suspect he has. John MacArthur teaches Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21 all describe a future desolation. All describe a future desolation. Uh, I don't think that's right. Personally, I don't. Um, He will acknowledge that 70 AD might have been a pattern, but he thinks that Luke chapter 21 still describes that future abomination of desolation. I disagree uh, respectfully. Alistair Begg, don't laugh for any reason there, I'm just saying, just these these renowned figures, not that I think that his is foolish at all. Um, He believes Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21 all describe Jerusalem's Past desolation in 70 A.D. He says all three of them describe that. I also can't see that as right. Uh, These must, in my mind, describe two similar but separate desolations. There were multiple desolations. You understand we read in Isaiah 63 earlier. I was trying to show to you, it isn't like this was one event in history. That Jerusalem was desolated. Uh, It's not unusual for Scripture, by the way. There are multiple prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, They describe how a rebellious Israel had turned their back, and when they were, they were left desolate. They're carried off into captivity into Babylon. The northern kingdoms went into Assyria. Uh, The temple uh, was left desolate and broken down. Um, Some of those same prophecies that we read 
uh, are also employed later by the New Testament to describe a similar rebellion of Israel during the time of Christ. Multiple fulfillments, uh, and there were roughly 500 years, over 500 years between those events, right around 500 years. Um, Israel, over the centuries, uh, they displayed a repeated pattern, a repeated uh, pattern. They were prone to wander. They were prone to wander from God's covenant. In response, God would punish them, invade them with armies, send famines, plagues, and and disperse them into captivity more than once. More than once. And the consequence of Jerusalem uh, was that Jerusalem was pillaged. It was left desolate, uninhabitable for a long time. This is a pattern that happened repeatedly. So I see no problem during the Olivet Discourse. If you read through any of these accounts, Matthew is the longest. I mean, you can read through it in about four minutes. All right? This this last night of teaching with his disciples there uh, before the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus didn't just speak to them for four minutes. As I said a couple weeks ago, there's more to this Olivet Discourse than what we see. He probably went on for some time with those disciples, uh, much more than what we can read. It is not incompatible in my mind, anyhow, that he had described two different patterns of desolation for them. Um, He uses similar language to describe two different desolations separated by 2,000 years. Um, Also, there's a lot of language in Matthew and Mark that is different than Luke 21. It's not all exactly the same, so I think it's a reasonable explanation. The account of the abomination of desolation and that great tribulation in Matthew chapter 24 uh, appears to use much language, if you look into that context, that suggests that those events occur after the gospel has been preached to the whole world, folks. After the gospel was preached to the whole world and immediately preceding the return of Christ. Luke uses language of Jerusalem's desolation that requires the Jews and therefore the gospel to be dispersed amongst the nations for a very long period of time until the times of the Gentiles are complete. So again, two different desolations. The prophecy in Luke 21 what is it for? There's a few things that it's for. Number one, it's one of the biggest ones right here. This prophecy in Luke chapter 21 is given by Jesus to warn his disciples and other Christians, other first century Christians, uh, during their generation to flee. That's what he's doing here, telling them to flee. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance. So that that all which is written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. There will be great distress upon the land, wrath to these people, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations. Folks, this all literally happened when the Roman, uh, well, he became emperor, but the Roman general Titus sieged Jerusalem for a period from 66 to 70 
A.D. Jerusalem rebelled. The zealots got in there and rebelled, and the Roman armies came. As Titus built up his armies, as the armies grew, as they threw up barricades around Jerusalem, this is well documented in history, there, there were opportunities for those who were smart to flee rather than hunker down. It's almost like a hurricane. You got a little bit of time. You going to run or are you going to hunker down? And that's what they had to decide in Jerusalem. Could they wait it out? They thought, a lot of them thought they could. Jesus said the smart ones are going to get out of town. The ones who listen to Jesus are going to get out of town. Uh, they're going to evade the misery. They're going to evade the massacre that written records suggest was upwards of a million people died by the sword in Jerusalem at that point. They were starving to death. The reports are grotesque of what was going on. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a distress like Jerusalem had never seen. This was the days of vengeance. It was reported by early church fathers and historians that many Christians fled. Many Christians fled. Uh, they fled to a city named Pella. Pella was a city in a region of Perea. It was a Gentile region with ten cities that for that reason, gen, ten Gentile cities, they're referred to as the Decapolis. All right, ten. Uh, uh, that was a nearby region. One of these gentlemen who recorded this was Eusebius. He writes, The people of the church in Jerusalem, this is 3rd century now, 200 and something A.D. The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. To it, those who believed on Christ traveled from Jerusalem. Pretty clear there. Pretty clear. One more. Another named Epiphanius, if I'm pronouncing that right, wrote this. This heresy of the Nazareans existed in Beoria, in the neighborhood of Syria, and the Decapolis, that region, in the region of Pella. From there, he's talking about a, a, a heresy that arose. From there it took its beginning after the exodus from Jerusalem, when all the disciples went to live in Pella. Look at that. After the exodus from Jerusalem, when all the disciples went to live in Pella, because Christ had told them to leave Jerusalem and to go away, since it would undergo a siege. Because of this advice, he writes, they lived in Pella after having moved to that place, as I said. Folks, the historical evidence, the extra-biblical evidence, the historians... Of, who wrote of what went on in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the biblical evidence strongly suggests that it was widely known that early Christians had heeded Jesus' prophecy and had also accepted that its fulfillment had occurred in 70 A.D. So many of the early uh, Christians concluded. Uh, the Jews who were left behind, they were slaughtered. Or they were led away captive. Jerusalem and the temple, they were dismantled stone by stone, just as Jesus had predicted, just as he had prophesied to his disciples uh, just previous to our text here. Uh, it was left desolate, it was uninhabited, and as a result, it, 
It has been trampled underfoot by the Gentiles ever since. Ever since. Um, does that times of the Gentiles sound like something that will uh, occur at the end of times? After, after an abomination of desolation, you know, for a couple of years, uh, immediately prior to Christ's return? No. The times of the Gentiles, uh, it's an Old Testament reference to dominance over the Jews by Gentile country, uh, Gentile countries. It referred to Syria. It referred to uh, Rome. It referred to Babylon. It was the times of the Gentiles. Dominance exercised over Israel. Um, Israel as a nation, we know, was reborn 1948. We'll talk about that in a couple past, a couple paragraphs. Interesting stuff. Yet it's still. It still today is not free to inhabit Jerusalem the way that it wants to. The, the Palestinians, the United Nations, all the Gentile nations, and others still flex their Gentile muscles. You know, they cry foul when the U.S. dares to move their uh, uh, embassy to Israel's capital. The Gentiles are still flexing their muscle over them uh, already for 2,000 years now. Uh, I don't see anything here in this passage that, that demands that we wait to be fulfilled. Uh, the only problem left that, that needs to be addressed is it's a pesky little notation in verse, chapter, or, uh, verse 22. It, that causes a bit of problems for some. I hope it doesn't for us today. Jesus says in verse 22, Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. If 70 AD truly indicates those days of vengeance, John MacArthur says that poses a problem. He's very adamant that not all things written were fulfilled in 70 A.D. He sees too many prophecies left in the Old Testament for Israel to entertain that idea. So he cuts it off. Just didn't happen, he says. He insists verse 22 is, is overwhelming evidence, according to him, overwhelming evidence that Luke 21 did not occur in 70 A.D. It wasn't fulfilled there, but waiting to be fulfilled with a future Israel. Just like he says he sees in Matthew 21, uh, 24. Alistair Begg is just as adamant, just as adamant. He's relieved that Jesus says all things were fulfilled in this text, uh, he says, in 70 A.D. Therefore, there is nothing left according to him that needs to be fulfilled before Christ's return. The return is imminent. We've talked about that. Uh, according to Alistair, and, and these two men remain friends, by the way. They remain friends, good friends. But Alistair says there's no... That it's, it's so clear in the context that, that this desolation occurred back in 70 A.D. That 20, uh, verse 22 is overwhelming evidence, he says, that all things have been fulfilled. What's the answer to the riddle? He says that Matthew 24, Mark 15, 13 has also been fulfilled. All things have been fulfilled. Not waiting for anything. Um, he suggests... The abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. 
described in Matthew 24 are not future, but figurative. Not future, but figurative. That's what he said. Gerald, where is he? He left. He's with Gideon. One of the things that we were taught uh, firmly at Dallas Seminary, and congratulations to him again uh, for, uh, he actually got his diploma and everything now too, so it's, it's wonderful that he was able to complete that. Um, we were very much encouraged to read people we disagree with. He goes, you don't want to have blinders on where you can't even talk to other people. And, and consider views that are contrary to your own. You get into a very narrow-minded group of people when you do that. Oh, I, I, I can't listen to that. I'll, I'll tell you what, Alistair Begg thinks. You're probably going to hear it on the radio anyhow. He suggests the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation described in Matthew 24 are not future, only figurative, and that the events recorded in 70 AD serve as a pattern of the abomination of desolation that literally occurred in 168 B.C. That, that was a time when Antiochus Epiphanes, I love saying that, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he set up an idolatrous image of Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on it, we know that as well, uh, as prophesied by Daniel, that there'd be an abomination of desolation. So according to Alistair, Jesus' prediction of an abomination of desolation, a tribulation, uh, point to another desolation similar in 168 B.C. Uh, Both men use verse 22 to uh, reinforce that their view is clearly the right view. Alistair has a problem. He, He does have a problem. How then does Christ's return follow immediately after the Great Tribulation, if that was it? Christ says, I'll return immediately in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, If that occurred in 70 AD, he's late. Jesus isn't going to be late, all right? So there's a problem. MacArthur also has a problem. Um, When the context of our passage, historical documentation, and the natural reading suggests, as we have looked at, that, that verses 20 to 24 already occurred in 70 AD. It's hard to lump that into... Matthew 24, uh, as I was listening to MacArthur, and, and I encourage you to listen to both people if you're interested in eschatology, he addressed one major objection to his view. And there are a few, but one, one major one. It is Jesus and his warning for them to flee into the mountains in both passages. If this describes, if these both describe a future great tribulation brought by God, Uh, when bowls of wrath are poured out on all flesh, all humanity, poured out on all the earth, where then will there be anyone, uh, any place for anyone to flee? Follow me? Why then would Jesus be telling them to flee Jerusalem? No place to go, as Nathan just reinforced. Thank you. Really? So there's a problem there. And, and, and do you know what John's answer was? This is what I really love. This is good. Uh, he said that command by Jesus to flee, well, it's only figurative. Figurative, just emphasizing how bad the conditions are going to be. All right? <laughs> um, I, I like that because 
it shows that everybody takes part literal and part figurative. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's intended, he suggests, to amplify that devastation of the Great Tribulation. Both men interpret part of these passages as literal. Both uh, in, uh, interpret part as figurative. What do they agree on? This is what's most important. Jesus is coming. His saints are going to be spared. And there's going to be great wrath poured out on those left behind. Those will be punished. Therefore, as Jesus said, I read it to you earlier, be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. For you do not know the day or the hour of your Lord's return. That's what I want to amplify in this passage. This is what, that's Luke 12, verse 20. Do you know what I really dislike about all, all this forecasting? You probably, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you've kind of seen probably that I have a little bit of a distaste for people who are just way too dogmatic uh, on these things. Um, what I really dislike about all of this forecasting of the unfolding of the end times is that most of the time, listeners are left with the perception that Jesus can't return until something more happens. We have to see some kind of sign. There must be an event. It's got to be the temple rebuilt. There's got to be an abomination of desolation. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed first. How about the great apostasy? That's got to come too. Some people insist... Jesus can't come yet. Well, that's dangerous. That is really dangerous with the readiness that we've been told to be prepared. I can't think of a more irresponsible declaration than dogmatically insisting that Jesus can't come yet. That's horrible. Uh, or, or he can't come yet. I got my chart. <laughs> he's, not, he's not scheduled yet. All right? That's what we have to be careful of, um, especially in the face of the repeated calls by Jesus in this, in this Gospel of Luke that we've seen together. Be ready. Be ready. Especially when the apostles, Paul, Peter, and John, all three, all warn Christians that that day of the Lord's return will come like a thief. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Peter 3.2, Revelation by John 3, verse 3. Um, I do think that we are anticipating to see some things, personally. I think we are anticipating uh, events that yet remain. But listen to this quote from Thomas Constable. He's another longtime Bible expositor, a professor from Dallas Seminary, very highly respected very humble man at Dallas Seminary. He writes this in Dallas's flagship uh, commentary set, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, peer-reviewed by the other faculty. So he writes this. This is his comments on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He, meaning Paul, the apostle, referred to three events which must occur before the judgments of the day of the Lord took place. They are the apostasy, the revealing of the man of lawlessness, and the removal of restraint against lawlessness. These are not necessarily given in strict chronological order. 
One major event is the rebellion, that is the falling away, uh, or the apostasia, which we've read about much. From whence comes the English word apostasy, he says. Constable continues, there is a revolt, a departure, an abandoning of a position once held. This rebellion, which will take place within the professing church, will be a departure from the truth that God has revealed in His Word. That's the apostasia. Not to misrepresent Dr. Constable. At the time that he wrote this, years back, um, at, at writing, these three remain future in his theology. But let me ask you three things as we wind down. Three things. Three questions. Are we waiting for a great apostasy? of the church or are we living in a great apostasy of the church think about that think about what is going on under the umbrella of Christianity churches and what they do uh, a departing from God's revealed word That's fulfilled, folks. That is fulfilled. It's not fulfilled everywhere, but it is fulfilled. We are living in the days of Noah and of sodomy, just as Christ said. Um, Number two, are we looking for the man of lawlessness to be revealed? If so, would we recognize him if we saw him? Would we have calculated things correctly on a personality? Are we that good of judge of personality? Just a thought. Number three, are we waiting for a restraint against lawlessness to be removed? Or has it been removed? Is man going after his own way, just as in the days of Noah? Has that restraint been removed? Do we perceive reality is what I'm asking. We just need to reflect on ourselves. Um, let me ask you this. It's a, it's a fifth question, by the way. Sorry, I said three. Here's a fifth. Though we are permitted, think about this, this is a very important. Though we are permitted to hold strong convictions, I do. I do. In fact, I've enjoyed eschatology so much more than back when I was, you know, studying it for a test. I, I really am, am grown with, with great confidence and comfort from what I'm understanding now in the end times. It's taken me a while to get there. Um, we're permitted to have strong convictions. But are you absolutely certain that you have correctly distinguished future end times events between literal and figurative? Are you absolutely confident you're like, yeah, yeah, man, I got together. Would you be willing to, bit, willing to bet your soul on it? That you didn't somehow make a mistake in the order of some of this stuff? I'm not. I'm not willing to bet my soul on it. When it comes to the unfolding of the end times, I've heard too many good Christian men, whom I respect and admire, disagree with one another. 
I've read too many commentaries that contradict one another, and I've heard too many seminary professors who are much wiser than me, know the original languages much better than me, have studied for years longer than I, remain uh, 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 professing that they're uncertain. They're just uncertain. Uh, I'm not going to tell other Christians who disagree with me on things like that, end times things, the timing of the rapture, pretty much every, um, pretty much every truly believing Christian believes in a rapture. It's the timing of it that we disagree on. Uh, but I'm not going to tell people who disagree on the timing of the rapture, the nature of the mark of the beast, the abomination of desolation, that they're going to hell because of it. We need to be a little more forgiving, a little more graceful. Uh, pinpointing all of these has never been essential for salvation. Praise God. <laughs> I'd be in a tough spot. God assures when my word says, flee, you're going to be really glad you did. That's the point out of this. Jesus is saying you need to flee and obey my word. You're going to be glad you did. When he assures my word says flee idolatry so you can restore your relationship with me, you're going to be really glad you did. When God's word says flee sexual immorality, it's because he loves us and doesn't want us or our families to be injured by sexual immorality. When his word says flee from youthful lusts, and 2 Timothy 2.23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they only produce quarrels, he says that because he wants unity among believing brethren, that they can have uh, uh, kind dialogue. He continues there saying, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And Jesus says, When my word says flee from the love of money, it's because I don't want any idle remaining between me and you. Flee. It's all for our good. Everything's for our good. Closing notations. And we're done. First, and obviously, Jerusalem and the temple are no longer the center of biblical worship. Those promises, he's telling the disciples, you know those promises that I made to always protect Israel under every circumstance? That old covenant, done. Jerusalem's going to be decimated. Uh, We have a new covenant now. uh, Jesus' disciples say in verses 12 through 19, they are to endure persecution for true religion, verses 12 through 19, but flee God's wrath, verse 20 to 24, when it's poured out against false religion. Endure persecution for true religion. Flee when God's wrath is poured out against false religion. If you must die, die for the gospel. Don't die for Jerusalem. Alright? Second, since many of you will live to see this prophecy, Jesus would know, fulfilled, uh, fulfilled when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, you can be absolutely certain, we can, we can be absolutely certain that we can trust in Christ when he says, I'm going to come back again, and I'm going to judge the living and the dead and establish my kingdom. When he says he will do that, it will be fulfilled as, as, as sure as Jerusalem was sacked. His future return and his future kingdom is secure. And third and finally, you know, most America has not been real serious about God's judgment on the unrighteous. We haven't. It's like Jesus is... You know, this guy who overlooks everything. 
no matter what. Uh, God's a tooth fairy who gives us what we want. These are views that people have. America hasn't been serious. But since God's wrath against Jerusalem, described here as the days of vengeance, was so severe, so severe, the, to the extent of suffering and agony that they endured there was, was devastating. Devastating. Folks, folks, downtown Minneapolis, I don't know any of us who'd want to be down in that area right now. That's nothing. That's not days of vengeance. That's just a few hours. Rioting. But since God did this against Jerusalem for not recognizing their day of visitation, what do you think the penalty in hell is going to be for your sins if you had rejected His one and only Son? That is not going to be good. That is not going to be good. Um, I pray here, and let us pray as we close, that none of us here ever finds out. That is not going to be a good day. Father, your gospel is preached that you sent your sinless son to be born of a virgin, that he lived a life without any sin and then offered on the cross to endure the sins of many, to take our punishment upon him. Lord, that he would die in our place so that we don't have to go to hell, that we don't have to suffer uh, your just wrath, but Lord, that we can be restored to you through faith in him. Scripture says, to all who receive Him, to all who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. And Lord, as uh, we think about our time and our days, not knowing how long they're going to last, Lord, I pray each one of us here is ready that we would, uh, will have trusted in Christ, that we would know Him as Savior, and that we would rejoice on that day that He returns. In Christ's name, amen.